Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. The end is near. Or maybe not. It's not really going to be the end. It's uh, probably just like some pretty big cultural shift or something like that. Probably you won't be able to see it with your eyes, not physically. I mean, that explains why the date I gave you last week, the date when the world was supposed to end, yeah, it didn't It didn't happen. Fire didn't rain down from the sky and the seas didn't boil over. And, and to be honest, all that brimstone was just metaphorical. The seas metaphorically boiled over in your soul. Today, we start our long-anticipated Apocalypse series. For anyone who's worried that a series on the Apocalypse might spell the end of the podcast, relax. You worry too much. History tells us that we as a species have managed to survive hundreds, if not thousands, of our last days on Earth. The question for the next eight or so episodes is going to be, why do we make these predictions if they expose us to such fantastic and humiliating failure? Why do we like to imagine ourselves in the end times? And has there been any truth to the apocalyptic predictions that have led up to this day, when we're all still here, carrying on like always? Because after all, carrying on in 21st century America is a different affair than it was in 12th century Europe or 3rd century Rome. Cultures, east, west, and globally, have undergone tremendous change since the dawn of the Homo sapien. Could these changes be their own apocalypses in miniature form? Is it possible for the apocalypse to come for some, and not for all of us? As with the messianic Branch Davidians, or comet-bound Heaven's Gate cult? We'll begin with a prediction that is both the most ancient and most recent that we'll feature on our series— Today, our discussion is about the Mayan Apocalypse in 2012. Arguably, the end date of December 21st, 2012 was set on the first day of the Mayan calendrical cycle on August 31st, 3114 BCE. But it only entered our modern culture in about 1966 and didn't become popularized really until after the Y2K scare of 1999. Some of our listeners may remember that fateful Mayan end times winter solstice seven years ago. I was months away from defending my dissertation, and the spiritualist community I was working with, who seemed to know their stuff on all things alternative religion and the New Age, wasn't too concerned about it, so I didn't pay it much attention, I just carried on. Still, plenty of people were concerned, or at least interested, in the 2012 phenomenon. In early 2012, there were, according to search statistics, 150 million hits for the term 2012 and other terms related to apocalypse. As it turns out, nothing happened. Or nothing seemed to happen. But the theories behind the Mayan apocalypse are staggeringly creative and tell us a lot about the relationship between the indigenous and the colonizer, the ancient and the modern, and our fantasies of species-wide transformation. Today, we're talking an ancient Mayan postmodern American New Age prediction that may or may not have come true. The year Adele's Rolling in the Deep beat out Bonnie Vare, Katy Perry, Bruno Mars, and Mumford and & Sons for best album at the Grammys. Daniel Day-Lewis was Abraham Lincoln, and Jennifer Lawrence was a person in Silver Linings Playbook. What were you guys doing in 2012? I honestly don't remember. You don't remember the year, the whole year? No, I don't remember, like, Y2K. Like, I, like, I know I remember of it, but I don't remember it happening. All right, so 25 years ago, how old were you? were three in Y2K? <laughs> what would you no, remember? No, but I'm saying, like, I never remember anyone talking about it until I got older. Well, what about 2012, though? That's much, You were older then. No, that's what I'm saying. I don't... None of this shit. Like, I, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I feel like for being, like, so into conspiracy, like, like I don't... You never hear about any of this till way later. How about Dan and Brooke? So, funny story, actually. I was super into conspiracies as a child. Uh, I guess I still am, but I'm smarter about it now, I suppose. Uh, and I distinctly remember the date, the night before, so December 20th, I took the time and laid out on my front yard 
and stared at the sunset in about as music video fashion as you can get. And I contemplated my life at 2012. What did you expect would happen, Dan, out on the uh, out on the lawn there? Uh, you know, I I can't say. I was I was reading things about crashing into a mystical planet, about uh, spiritually exploding, and a lot of th- strange things. And let's see. So like a melancholia scenario where a planet is coming and colliding with ours and Kirsten Dunst is naked? Yeah, I was fully expecting a Majora's Mask-esque death. <laughs> oh, there you go. There's, we're getting the references all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> for, for nerds of all stripes. I'm pretty sure I was listening to The Bends by Radiohead. Uh, uh, just, 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 just laying out, being like, Mom, yep, this is it. And she was like, Son, why are you doing this? Come inside, it's cold. And I was like, Mom, I'm dying. Brooke, were you out on the lawn? No, I wasn't out on the lawn, but I do remember the night before, uh, it was December 12th or the 21st? It was the 21st, but th- there were various predictions, so... Okay, well, the most popular one, I remember um, I was with one of my best friends at the time, and we were pretty much just living life the best that a 13-year-old could at the time. (laughs) We were um, watching movies and staying up late, pretty much just waiting for our end to come. (laughs) So you were expecting Apocalypse too. Oh, I was totally expecting an Apocalypse. (laughs) I don't remember it being a, like, the people around me did not talk about, like, I mean, I was in high school. Maybe so, you were too old. It was uncool. I was like trying to graduate. So like maybe Me too. I was like, I was trying to graduate as well. About it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, as you can hear, uh, we've got an interesting crew here today. Uh, my name is Rob. You're used to me. Rob C. Thompson, doctor of things occult and I guess things apocalypse for the purposes of the next couple months. Uh, joined as always by Olivia Litterall. I am the supreme hierophant of the order and Olivia is our grand master of the alchemical actors. Hello. And we've got our two neophytes. We decided that uh, to get us going with the apocalypse, we wanted to have people that we could sacrifice if we had to. Young blood. Like if things got real, if planets started colliding with ours, we needed a couple of new people that people wouldn't miss. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got Dan Rosendale. Hello. Glad to be here. Dan, you've probably heard uh, doing voices on, on some previous epo- episodes. Dan, when did you get started doing voices with us? About a year ago? Uh, yeah. Uh, Rob approached me during class, and he was like, hey, I have this podcast, and we're talking about Nazis. Do you want to do some voices? <laughs> and I was like, that sounds completely safe and not sketchy. Yes. And Dan was the youngest, I think, person on our crew, and he played an old man, as I recall, the oldest character that we have voiced. Yes, much to my throat's demise. <laughs> uh, and we've got uh, Brooke Mayerall. Am I getting that right, Brooke? Yes, that's fine. Uh, who is uh, actually a Spanish redhead. Hi. So the most ethnically correct student I could find for, for the Mayan apocalypse. She's also a ginger folk. <laughs> yes, but I don't look Hispanic at all as I'm very pale. Pale ginger folk. So that's all right. It's a podcast, so no one needs to know. Oh, oh. we just told them, though. Yeah, it's out. We, the members of the secret order of alchemical actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. Oh, we need to... That felt a little bit like uh, like we're in Sunday school now, Olivia, and we're trying to like get the Please kids, the yeah, the, teach the kids yeah. the prayers and stuff. Yeah, that's all right. Please that's okay. You guys will get it. That was not terrible for your first round. Usually we don't let y'all gang up on us. We're not usually two and two. We leave somebody to linger with a neophyte, but now we're we've really balanced ourselves out here. Just three guys in there. This is the Sunday school of occult confessions today. Which is weird because we're not talking about Jesus. We're we're talking about the Mayans. Right, and we publish on Fridays. So uh, <laughs> let's, let's let's do the three plugs. Plug. 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 You've been thinking about that, haven't you? No, that was very organic. Oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> Let's talk about sources today. Um, I'm uh, very. Our, our sources are very important because we're going to be spending a lot of time talking through and interrogating them. We've got um, 
Michael Barcoon's Apocalyptic Expectations, which is providing some context for me. And then we're going to put two sources sort of in conversation. The first is Gaspar Pedro Gonzalez's 13 Bakhtun, colon, Mayan Visions of 2012 and Beyond. Uh, and Gaspar Pedro Gonzalez is actually uh, Mayan. And Jose Argueles is not Mayan. His book is The Mayan Factor, colon, Path Beyond Technology. And Jose Argueles is really the major articulator of the Mayan apocalypse theory. He's not alone. We'll talk about some of the people who are around him, but he had the fullest articulation, so that's why I wanted to use his book. Let's talk about our patrons uh, next, our favorite people on Earth, other than the alchemical actors, of, of course. Well, maybe we like them better. Yeah. Uh, so we've got Moseo. Moseo. Welcome to Moseo, or Moseo. I like the first one, personally. It is the Mayan day. Amy M. Amy M. Also, Jesse A. Jesse A. Yeah. New friends. New friends on the Patreon. Welcome, and uh, we do encourage the rest of our listeners to think about joining us. The patron crew is growing, and we are publishing now monthly episodes on special serieses. Uh, just for our patrons. So go ahead and check that out. Dive on in for any monthly dollar amount. You too can get those special bonus episodes. Do you have anything to say about merch, Olivia? Oh, I was going to say rock and roll. Rock and roll. That's what you can find if you join our Patreon. You can find that rock also roll. Yeah. I was just plugging what we're doing over there. And merch. Merch! Yeah. So on our website, you can order merch from us. It's like, what, 20? 20 a shirt? 20, yeah, a couple bucks for shipping, but yeah, yeah, pretty cheap. Pretty cheap compared to some other podcasts. Yeah, and you'll get your own little shirt with occult confessions. If you're on, if you see our Instagram at all, we're like always wearing it. So. Always repping the brand. Join the fam. And if you buy something, send me a picture of you in it and we'll post it. Isn't that fancy? You gotta share the love. Gotta share that love. Blackheart. Blackheart. Let's <laughs> close up the plugs. Plug, plug, plug. Ooh. <laughs> The first one was, uh, you know, crescendo of, anyway. Of plugs. Yeah. Yeah, that was, that was sexy. Let's get down to the 2012 phenomenon, shall we? So we're going to start. Not so sexy. (laughs) I don't know. It really depends on how you feel about apocalypse. Some people, right, don't you bang at the apocalypse? Isn't that a thing? I guess that's when you, like, do a lot of cocaine and, like, ball out, right? Right. Not if you're 13, like Brooke. I mean, maybe if the end of the world is, I'm not saying dare, everyone. What what was your cocaine, Brooke, for the apocalypse? Like Coke? Um, no, we didn't have anything like that. No, no Coca Cola. No Instagram. <laughs> you had social media. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds more like Disney Channel was their cocaine. Disney Channel. <laughs> All right, but you weren't like you know scarfing down Cheetos or something. No, probably um like pizza and whatever my friend's mom would make us. Oh, so healthy so food. A normal. No, just a normal night, really. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but with lots of Instagram. Yeah. That because you know that's what you would miss most. Post yeah, as a thirteen-year-old. 13-year-old yeah. Textbook children cocaine. <laughs> well, you may have been right to be using Instagram because there's an argument that the technology was going to blink out. But anyway. Let's get to the 2012 phenomenon, shall we? So we're going to talk broadly to begin uh, with just some ideas that were being tossed around about Apocalypse and 2012 before we drill down into our two theories that we want to explore from the Mayan perspective and from the outside Mayan perspective. So let's start uh, with where this whole idea comes from. The Mayan Bakhtun, which is a sort of era, set of time, uh, is a time period that lasts 144,000 days. Interestingly, that is the same number of the righteous who would be saved in Revelation, in the biblical book of Revelation. But that's an episode for another day. Thirteen Bactoons. Bactoons. What's going on there? It made me uncomfortable. Thirteen Bactoons comprise the Mayan long count, which is exactly 1,872,000 days. Didn't have that written down. Did that in my head. I'm lying. The long count... But you were going to let me do it, weren't you? No one was going to call me out. You know, you PhD. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that thing is just a piece of paper, huh? (laughs) Really? And it's not in math. Uh, I can't do math at all. I took calculus in college. That's the last time I've taken a math class. I can't do calculus now. Same. Right? So the long count began on the 11th of August. uh, Let's see. What did I say? 3114 BCE. 
and was scheduled to end in 2012. December the 21st became the popular choice for the specific date with its correlation to the winter solstice. That's really the reason. I don't know if this was a mathematical thing. You know, we were sort of tossing it around where what the actual last day could be. The long count calendar was in use during the Mayans' classic period from the year 250 to the year 900. Part of the reason the time is a little uh, up for grabs is because the Mayan calendar does not have the same number of months as we do. They have 13 months, I'm pretty sure, as opposed to our 12 months, and their months are shorter. Okay, so correlating the calendars is very difficult to do. The apocalypse theory as a modern phenomenon dates to, as I mentioned at our intro, 1966. That was the year Mayan scholar Michael Coe suggested that the end time would happen on December the 24th, 2011. So lots of different days going around here. Christmas Eve, what a way to ruin Christmas. The fact that 2012 became the accepted date shows how difficult it was to correlate, as I've said, the Gregorian and Mayan calendars with 27 separate correlations available. That's how many versions we have of how they could possibly go together. Lots of numbers. We're going to get all these numbers. What are all these numbers? We don't talk numbers. It's kind of a numbers thing, but we won't talk about them for too much longer. All right, so countdown to no more numbers. Co. Michael Coe, our scholar, was largely alone among scholars in predicting any kind of apocalypse. Most Mayan scholars concluded that the end of the long count was simply a resetting of the calendar. And in May 2012, archaeologists unearthed Mayan ruins that carried the calendar 7,000 years forward, still millennia from now. So it could be that... What? Why didn't they tell us that before we all freaked out? You're sitting there Instagramming your face off. Your eyes are bleeding. <laughs> right. I, I Because that's no fun. Yeah. yeah, it would kill the whole game of it. Right? There would be no good movies. Right? Yeah. Where, where, about where, the uh, end. Yeah. Jake Gyllenhaal would be out of work. Are you talking about the 2012 movie? Because that thing was like a 7 out of 10 at best, man. Come Who was on. in yeah, that? Yeah, I've never seen it, though. Never, yeah. Who was in that movie? I, was it Jake Gyllenhaal? He was in a, a Apocalypse movie. The, the one bald monk guy stole the show. Ah, oh, well. He's on the poster if you look it up. Spoiler alert. Bald monk steals show. <laughs> seven out of ten stars. <laughs> I don't even know what Nothing to else say to say. Nothing else to say. So, uh, getting back to the Mayans here. The two views really are that either we're reaching an end point or it's just a resetting of the cycle. And, Really, if we're thinking about the indigenous Mayan perspective, linear time and an endpoint doesn't isn't part of this culture. So it was sort of ridiculous for us to believe that they had a linear time structure anyway. Even for the Hindus who envision a kind of end, it's just the beginning of a new cycle. So our culture and Western culture has this linear view of things. And when we talk revelation in a couple episodes, we'll see how the linear thing, like that's it, it's over. Everything's changed and it's not going back. But in a cyclical view, like we're never going to have an end. Anyway, that's probably what me and my grad school buddies were saying. <laughs> so if we had your phone number, Brooke, it would be weird because you were 13 and graduate school students shouldn't be calling you, but we would have let you know that it's, it's okay. You can put Instagram down. <laughs> she would have been like, Mom, Mom's friend. <laughs> These graduate students are calling me because one of them says he's a time traveler and knows that he's going to meet me. And he's got this cool podcast. Here's the link. <laughs> if we had a podcast in 2012, we would be world famous right now. We, yeah. sh- we would have gotten in on the ground floor, but oh well. We're starting now, <laughs> six years later. Yep. We're followers anyway. So the Mayans saw the 13 Bakhtuns culminating on December the 21st as part of a much larger cycle stretching infinitely through time forward and backward. As 2012 approached, the notion of a Mayan apocalypse took on a life of its own. Some framed the Mayan apocalypse in terms of conspiracy theory, such that the Mayans themselves became a kind of afterthought. In one of my favorite of these scenarios, and it's only one, there are many of them, the Mayan apocalypse was subsumed by a scenario in search of a date, uh, which believers figured might as well just be 2012. So there was this apocalyptic scenario kind of floating out there. They were like, well, when's it going to be? We don't know. Well, there's this Mayan thing. All right, 2012. So Sergey Monast, a Quebecois journalist. So Serge Monast. Quebecois. He's from Quebec. Oh. Yeah. Isn't that fancy? 
my God. You would move to Quebec just that. to be called a Quebecois anything. Yeah. That's incredible. I totally would. Right? A Quebecois brook. Oh. <laughs> uh, he published his Project Blue Beam Theory in 1994, arguing that humanity was about to experience vast planetary ruin that certain elite groups were in the process of shielding themselves from. Monast. Oh, you want to say something about that? The Illuminati? Yeah, sort of. But NASA. So, the Illuminati? Monast, uh, who died in 1996, was outlived by his ideas, which came to center around the 2012 Summer Olympics in London. NASA, according to this theory, was an evil crew of masterminds running the nefarious blue beam operation, which would unfold in a series of steps. First, they would cause a series of earthquakes, which would unearth artifacts that would disprove much of modern organized religion. Then, they would produce the voice of God speaking publicly in a variety of languages to the masses, and then privately through electronic telepathy just to you. Finally, they would convince everyone that an alien invasion coupled with the rapture was imminent, persuading them to follow any messiah NASA should deem worthy to produce. Theoretically, I guess, like Buzz Aldrin or somebody. That lines up with, like, a lot of David Icke thought. Oh, really? Well, some, like, bits of what you said. That makes sense, because I think it's all crazy. Well, because, like, he he brings, (laughs) like, the reptilian aspect into it, but, like, that the reptilians are using, like, a lot of those points to keep control over us in our world and it's like the same thing because the illuminati is like the reptilian is david Icke big on the antichrist because that's ultimately what we're talking we're talking you know antichrist buzz aldrin i don't know if it's so much antichrist as it is just like archons you know like the reptilians like within the i think it's like a mass more than just like a one yeah this lines up more closely with revelation anyway they were just like mayans why not 2012 there's the day all I'm saying, though, is that if suddenly out of nowhere Buzz Aldrin started telepathically speaking to me, <laughs> I would be completely okay with that. If you could hear Buzz Aldrin's voice in your head. Buzz? <laughs> is that you? Can I walk on the moon? Yes, my son. <laughs> you too. Yeah. All right, so there's another theory involving the Mayan crystal skulls. Have you come across these, Olivia? What? I'm very The Mayan intrigued. crystal this skulls? This sounds like everything I want. Right, so... This was uh, much more heavily influenced by New Age ideology than anything like Mayan culture or scholarship because there are no such things as Mayan crystal skulls. There are Mayan... Okay, let me explain. Let me explain. I got so excited. Now you're telling me they're not? Well, there are are, crystal skulls, but they're not Mayan. So the skulls are skull-shaped human carvings made of clear or white quartz. Uh, and they're currently kept in museums around the world. The British Museum skulls were sold by a French antiquities dealer in Mexico City as Aztec artifacts, but none of the skulls were recovered from any known excavation sites, and careful study has revealed that they were formed uh, using modern jeweler's tools, probably in 19th century Germany. In 2008, the Sci-Fi Channel... Which we don't talk an- about enough, I, I think, love, on a call I'm of confessions. A big fan of the sci-fi channel. It's where you can catch uh, uh, what, what's that movie about shark killer sharks? Oh, like Sharknado. No, no, there's there's they more. Have, they have like, a bunch uh, of shark themed entertainment. This they was have the a one bad. That's like the leopard shark or whatever. This versus... was this got a theatrical release though. Oh. They're like oh. genetically engineered sharks. Into the know. deep or the blue or something. Yeah, I don't 47 meters down. I mean, that sounds sexy, but I don't... No, are you talking about the, the huge shark movie? Where the no, shark not is like, like Sharknado. No, no, it's, it's like, like they're like genetically radio. engineered sharks. Our listeners are yelling at their, their radios now. It's, it's deep nice. blue sea or something. Anyway, you can catch that and its sequel, which I was watching because I guess I had lost all will to live one night yeah Yeah, i don't know (laughs) so uh anyway so in 2008 uh, the sci-fi channel aired a special in which people who say things claimed that there were 13 that's literally their qualifications right hey i'm one of those right (laughs) history channel sci-fi channel is just people who say things although if we're being honest podcast america we have a lot of those too um i don't happen to be one of those but they're out there okay so there's an argument that the skulls are a kind of 
computer containing secret data from this sci-fi episode that the Mayans stored inside it. Uh, but we don't have the means of retrieving it. And if you could bring them all together, it would hold off the apocalypse. Well, that's an attractive scenario. Right? That, I like that idea. That's like vaguely like um, with the Lumerians, but before when they... Remember how I talked about before how they had like the big into the crystals? Yeah. That was like one of the phases. They kind of almost talk about it in a similar way. Was there secret data in there that we just had to get the... Well, like, like Captain Planet, you put all the rings together and a man in tights comes out all blue and saves the world. Well, supposedly if we like had those crystals, it would like resonate within the earth again and we would like yeah. bring us back to that. Like, so almost in a way, kind of, it just reminds me of it. I think it's a pretty interesting thought. If only the Mayans maybe formatted their stuff better. If they gave us a floppy disk, <laughs> that'd be gave great. Us a floppy. But I mean, so like we created. Skull. Could we yeah, access a floppy awesome. disk right now? Even I mean, it, it'd be hard. I, I could probably, I could probably crack it for <laughs> they you. They don't make the computers for that anymore. Right, we're sort of at a loss. Yeah. But I mean, we as a culture created the Arecibo message for space travel. Oh, that's where, true. Where we right. sent it out, and I mean, if you take a look at that, it's not easy to decipher. Right. So we're just hoping the aliens will figure it out. Like, we'll figure out these crystal skulls one day, which were made by jewelers in Germany. Yeah, why can't we all just have a standardized communication, man? Right? I would so like easy. that to be crystal skull. We'll get on that. Christ <laughs> Thank you. I want to pick up my crystal skull when you call me. Like, you, <laughs> you know? It'll like just... Halloween Town, right? Yeah, like, we talk into it, and it, like, becomes your face a little bit, and I'm like, hello, Rob, and I'm, like, holding your head. Robin, it's the bat skull. Do you know that there's actually mediums who do that with dead people? Their Shut faces up. appear over the medium's face, and they communicate. I'm not about that. Yeah, That's I actually, like I watched it happen no, once. No, 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 Wait, no. do you guys know that one episode of The Sweet Life of Zack and Cody, when Esteban <laughs> communicates with the dead? <laughs> that is such a good episode, though. Yeah, it was really scary, oh, though. Relate. Luckily, our demographic skews more to your age than mine. But anyway, apologies to people my age who are listening and have no idea what's going on. Because I don't, if it makes you feel any better. I also want to mention, I didn't say this in our sources, I also did visit mindcrystalskulls.com for some of the information I just shared. Can you get one on there? I guess you can't. I don't know. I didn't try. but we It's can... in high demand, I'm assuming, yeah. if they're might. They're not sponsoring us Sorry. either way. A turn to the indigenous and the ancient suggests a dissatisfaction with the products of modernity in the Western world. Science and democracy appear to have failed us. Science has given us cancer-causing chemicals to put on our food, world-destroying weapons, and devices that fracture our attention and spy on us. Transforming us into data points in a marketer's spreadsheet... Democracy has betrayed our values, turned its back on the needy, and become hopelessly entangled in arguments without solutions while the fires burn and storms rage and lives are destroyed. The classical Mayan view, outside the timeline of Western civilization and before the advent of the scientific and industrial revolutions, offers a counterpoint to the failings of our modern world, which seem to be leading us closer and closer to the brink of some great ruin. So yes, Crystal Skull's kind of goofy, NASA theory kind of weird, but this is a legitimate complaint as well, if we want to read it as an indigenous critique. That gives us a glimpse of the culture around Mayan apocalyptic visions, but now let's get to the visions themselves. Our path into the actual prophecies, if we want to call them that, is going to be comparative, as I mentioned at the beginning. We're first going to look at the most famous iteration of the theory from Jose Arguelles, and then compare it to the perspective of an actual Mayan who tackled the problem of apocalypse to see what holds water and what is just wild speculation. Let's start with Jose. Arguelles. He's the scholar most associated with 2012. He's a historian who taught at the University of California, Davis, uh, who left the academy to become a leader in the New Age movement, like I plan to do one day. Oh. Right? Where are you going to go? I'm going to leave the academy to become a leader in the New Age movement. Yeah, but like, where are you going to set up camp? Oh, you mean because we won't have the theater anymore? Yeah. Hmm. Like, you know. We'll be able to afford our own like televangelist kind of space, oh. yeah, where we broadcast to the masses. I feel like it's just very important to pick your location as like a... Right. You know. 
Anyway, like dusty warehouse. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> mostly that. Yeah, looks like we murdered like, people in the back. What's our? So- oh, we have to pick a city. Where you want to go? Yeah, like everyone, every cult leader picks like a location. Well, we've got new people pick, in the mix. Maine, Maine? Maine? like secluded and Stephen cold. King. Absolutely not. Brooke wants to go someplace Whack. warm. We'll go to Arizona. Oh, nice. I'm all right with that. That seems bad with the sun for me. Mm. Sunscreen. No, <laughs> it doesn't. Incorrect. <laughs> anyway, Arguelles did not get a warehouse, nor did he go to Arizona. But he was born in Mexico, and he had an emic or outsider perspective on the Mayans. But his ideas were the most sensational, and they've become more or less the popular version. So he processed Mayan culture through his own subjective experience, starting his journey with the Maya by creating large paintings inspired by the Maya. So let's just start out there. He's not researching Mayan culture. Okay, so he is researching Mayan culture, but then he's like doing his own thing. He was going to process it and come up with his own versions of things in part through art. So inspired is really the best word for his relationship with the Maya. He, anything he gleans from the Maya is colored very intentionally through his own perspective. And I use the word colored in every meaning of the word. He's taking it, interpreting it, in, in this very abstract way, and then going back to his own abstract interpretations and processing them into his theories. So the Mayans are kind of several levels removed by the time we get to the actual 2012 phenomenon in his eyes. Olivia, gird your loins, because I'm about to mention one of your favorite people. They're, they're girded. So, Arguelles is first introduced to the 2012 date at the Ojai Institute in 1985 by one Terence... McKenna. My man, Terrence McKenna. So McKenna observed that the 2012 winter solstice would involve a conjunction of the sun with the Milky Way, which only happens once. Right? This is the kind of thing he would do, right? (laughs) So he's doing all his drug theories and smoking up mushrooms and stuff. Yeah, stone daves. And he's doing complex calculations about the galaxy. Uh, So... This apparently only happens once in the precession of equinoxes and solstices over the course of 25,800 years. So while the Maya may have been aware of this cosmic event, there are no significant references to it in their writing. Sorry, Terence McKenna. Nevertheless, Jose Arquelles was like, cool, that sounds accurate. Like, okay, that must have something to do with these Mayans that I'm obsessed with, uh, and begins to develop his own meaning of 2012. Dan, didn't you look into McKenna a bit on the Mayan issue? I did. If you look at some of McKenna's writings, he actually has a theory um, called revolt theory, I believe. Check me on that if I'm wrong. It's an R word, I believe. And what his ideas are is he originally based them around this time wave principle in that our society is built around a central time equinox in which we all experience things in very similar ways. And he based them originally around the bombing of Hiroshima. But upon learning of the 2012 incident, he then based them around that and explained that his theory was that on December 21st, 2012, every possible imaginable thing would happen in one instant and the universe would essentially implode and restart. I didn't know the name, but I do remember, I read a quote of him talking about it in in an interview when I did my research, but... It might, that sounds right. Revolt sounds fun. That's a good name. Yeah, you can actually find online, if you do enough digging, the software that he created open source to try and measure the time wave. It is called Time Wave Zero. You really did your research. I try. I think you can Google, yeah, you can Google images of, like, stuff of it with it too, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's just a basic black screen with a white wavy line on it. I love the idea of everything happening that could happen at once. I also like that idea. Sounds like a good and day. As a man that does DMT, if you've ever seen a simulation of a DMT trip, that's pretty much the same principle. <laughs> <laughs> it all comes together. It's just like a blink. So back to Jose Arguelles, uh, who was inspired by McKenna. He believed that extraterrestrials, who he called the Pleiades, which borrows from the greeks right and also i'm guessing the reptilian thing does well, this a bit Pleiades. Yeah. uh so they seek to synchronize earth with the galaxy and share the calendar with the mayans before returning to their home planet so the pleiades are like good aliens not bad aliens good aliens and they want to get us synced up with you know the galactic plan that they're 
you know, on board with already. So that's why they show up 5,000 years ago, drop this truth nugget on us. Truth bomb. I like nugget better, personally. Right, it sounds more pleasant, right? A little, little truth nugget. Argelis gained his information by channeling the spirit of a 7th century Mayan king, uh, in part. So again, more subjective processing without real Mayan research going on. He's doing that, but yeah, he's doing a lot of his own thing here. In 1993, he'd come to communicate with Telectonon, a talking stone of prophecy. Rock who talks. Its message came up through a stone tube, which actually does exist, traveling up the stairs of the crypt of the Mayan king Kinich Janab Pakal in the Temple of the Inscription in Palenque, Mexico. When you say a stone... <laughs> This is stuff for the fun. Do you oh. mean like like a like a mail shoot of like? Yes. Yeah. Are you oh. sure this is not for the podcast? It's fine. People might have <laughs> I didn't that question. Sound stupid. If, if I think it, it it's like, like a tube. It's like a tube that I'm goes up to that the top. Scene in like the Grinch where he's like in the mail room with all the mail tubes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. That's it. Except in oh. an ancient Mayan temple and talking about the apocalypse. That's now I'm just imagining the king as the Grinch in the. <laughs> So Argelis created his own 260-day Mayan ritual calendar, which he called Dream Spell, because you got to have names for calendars. This calendar differs from the indigenous calendar enough that Argelis labeled it Galactic Mayan to mark the contrast. The Galactic Mayan being your Pleiade, right, who comes and gives the Mayans their truth nugget. His theory starts with the idea that we are all connected to the galactic core or center of the galaxy, known to the Maya as Hunabku. We're connected by invisible life threads, the Kuksan Sum, which link up to our planet's atmosphere and then the solar system and then the galaxy. The life thread communicates in two directions, from us to the core and from the core back to us. It's important to note that Argelis understands the material world as the product of the mental world or consciousness. The universe is made of consciousness, which means that the information traveling to and from its core is a form of literal space travel. Yeah, I like that idea. That makes a lot of sense to me. You're with it? Yeah. You want to, You just want to travel through space. No, I just like the idea of consciousness being in space, like, and then we just basically pull from that. So your mind, if you can get your mind to travel, you can travel. Yes. <laughs> Brooke's already been, it sounds like. She's already gone. That's where I go when I sleep. There you go. She's in space, talking to them Mayans, them galactic Pleiades. The classical Maya, who were not galactic Pleiades, who uh, disappeared around the year 830, and they were representatives from the galactic core sp- placed on Earth to guide us toward harmonization with the whole of the cosmos. So they kind of were galactic Mayans, the classical Mayans. They traveled across space by transmitting their DNA code from one star system to another. As long as 3,000 years ago, the Mayans began transmitting themselves to Earth through this DNA code, remaining in contact with the galactic core. So they had, you know, like Mork from Mork and Mindy or whatever, they could talk to their home planet while being on Earth. But they didn't have to literally travel through space, as we've been talking about. They just projected now not their minds, but their DNA sequences across space, which then were allowed to be turned into human bodies. So it's like having sex over FaceTime. Yep, it's exactly like that. (laughs) Sweet. (laughs) The aliens aren't so much not like us. Also, Mark Zuckerberg isn't watching you. When they're transmitting their DNA across the galaxy, probably. He's a reptilian, so he's probably watching. I mean, he might be doing it himself. With their guidance, our vibration is meant to sync up with the vibration of the core as we evolve and develop. So we, too, can make contact with the core. How? At this point in Argele's narrative, we arrive at the tomb of Pakal Votan, or Pakal the Great, also known as Sun shield. I'd like to start being called a shield of some kind. You already have a name. Yeah, all right. He ruled the Mayan city-state, if I could have a couple, of Palenque for 68 years, beginning in 615. Like those British monarchs? They're like, you, you know. have like a doctor and a... I know, but Victoria was like queen spots. of England and regent of the empire the and of empire She's of India. She's a reptilian. She earned that title. Victoria the first was a... 
the entire <sighs> British line. Oh, sorry. Pakel became ruler at the age of 12, with his mother reigning over him as regent during the years of his minority. He extended Palenque's power and influence into the western parts of Mayan civilization and constructed a series of temples and buildings, some of which have lasted to the present day. By the way, this is true history. This actually happened. So, I know, because we're talking Argelis and this crazy stuff, DNA sequences. But this is a real guy. Okay. So, his most famous project was the Palace of Palenque, which he didn't originally construct, but he expanded on it, filling the place with elaborate frescoes and Mayan hieroglyphs. He was buried in a storied sarcophagus featured on countless History Channel specials. So, we got both the Sci Fi Channel and the History Channel playing today that argue for extraterrestrial influence in the ancient world. Now, you've probably seen this before. It's this famous image that's bandied about on all these alien theory specials. In it, the Mayan ruler is pictured seated on an elaborate pedestal facing upward with his hands curved toward a pillar stretching uh, upward, up beyond him. It's a Mayan depiction of the world tree, actually, this pillar stretching up beyond him. Eric von Donneken compared Pakal's pose to the astronauts, actual, like, Buzz Aldrin, arguing that the Mayan king was a space traveler and that we were witnessing him traveling in space. Argelius had his own similar interpretation. He relates a legend of the king claiming to be a serpent or bearer of knowledge. In this, oh, serpents, yeah, I know, they're your favorite guys. We can hear echoes of Blavatsky's secret doctrine as well, which need not have reptilian theory, Olivia, but I understand they can be aligned. So but if you remember, those of you who have not listened to our Blavatsky series, she argued that there were these characters or figures in history who she called serpents who were uh, bearers of, of uh, secret knowledge that they passed from generation to generation. So it's sort of a fascinating correlation there. The king had come to Palenque by way of the Valum Chivum, his mysterious homeland. Valum Chivum is a reference to one of the Mayan star bases, perhaps in the Pleiades, perhaps in Arcturus. These bases, of course, have been monitoring the Mayan mission since the first wave of galactic masters, the nine lords of time among them, had originally seeded the planet Earth. Galactic master Pakal Votan assigned by his superiors to oversee the initiation the final phase of the Mayan terrestrial project would also be known as Galactic Agent 136656, corresponding to the harmonic equivalent date AD 631 of his incarnation manifestation on this planet. The final phase concluded with the return of the classical Maya to the galactic core in the 9th century. If we could take ourselves back to AD 810, Kiragua, we might see a gathering in the courtyard before the great temple called Structure One. The last of the galactic masters, seven of them perhaps, each accompanied by a large quartz crystal, seated in intense meditation on the grassy plaza, suddenly become surrounded by a humming vibration a resonance that is part sound, part vision. Materializing into view are the luminous galactic cocoons. The cocoons first hover above the galactic masters, then slowly enclose them. The vibratory hum increases, blending with the ceaseless symphony of the omnipresent jungle. At first, imperceptibly, then as if it were a scene changing in a dream, the vibratory cocoons fade and disappear. A hushed awe overcomes the small gathering, which disperses with an air of solemn purpose and dedication. The Galactic Masters left behind instructions for humanity to retrieve galactic information and achieve alignment with the greater community of a galactic intelligence. Apocalypse in Argele's terms is the product of humanity reaching the zenith of materiality, which happened with the atom bomb. So we've reached the fullness of materiality. Uh, we'll see this again in other versions of the apocalypse. In a Christian context, we talk about reaching the fullness of evil, and that presages the apocalypse. But for Argelis, he sort of trans, tra- transposes that into this concept of we've become very material, and the atom bomb is the most material thing we can conceive of. The scientific revolution brought on the industrial revolution, which brought on democratic social revolutions, and finally all of these forces created that bomb. Happening in tandem with this was a slightly less dangerous activity of enhancing global communication and space exploration. Buzz Aldrin strikes again. 
We're at a transition point in which the old paradigm of scientific materialism is being fully realized and reaching a conclusion, and the new paradigm of a resonant field of planetary consciousness is rising up to replace it. In the last decade of the 20th century and first decade of the 21st, these forces existed together in great tension. Ultimately, though, with 2012, the old paradigm will give way and the new paradigm will take over. You got me? So we're, we're feeling, well, we did feel, not anymore. We're good. We're in the clear now. But pre-2012, we were feeling the pinch point of being fully material, but also the seeds of the next thing. Another way to view this is that nuclear bombs, the culmination of scientific materialism, upset the balance and resonance of the Earth so that the Earth, which is a living, breathing, conscious organism, by the way, Gaia theory, which I think we'll tackle in a, another series. <laughs> Certainly not today. Uh, but lot. that is part of Argelius' so idea. We're talking about ending the world, not talking about breathing. With the <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, that's, that's a whole other can of worms, right? So we have to buy the Gaia theory that the Earth is a living, breathing thing. Um, and it, it knows what to do. It has to seek out a new higher resonance to accommodate this dissonance that the bomb brought into our, our lives and incorporate that dissonance into the fold of a higher consciousness. So it's like the Earth is a pool of water and we've introduced a chemical that's made the water acidic. So the Earth introduces a new chemical to make the water more alkaline. Essentially, as you, when you do this, uh, you're going to grow the size of the pool, right? So Earth has to expand its field. And it, by expanding the field, adding more stuff to the pool, it balances out that dissonant energy. That's me processing this, not Argelis. Just FYI. That makes sense to me. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. But, Olivia, the problem with my metaphor is that the addition of the alkaline also makes the pool purer and more resonant with the galactic core, and the pool is actually adding the alkaline chemical to balance itself. I'm imagining an outsider doing this. It's actually the pool fixing itself in Argelis' world. For humans, this will bring about a turn away from our own technology and turn toward uh, an advanced biotechnology, drawing power on our understanding from the sun. Um, and that's a power we've failed to fully understand. As the triumph of man's infatuation with his own material inventiveness, global industrialization has had the singular effect of intensifying the binding of modern humans to the actuality of the sun as an intelligence to be factored into every activity. The truth is, is that we turn to gadgetry, not willing to own up to the power that lies within our own internal circuitry, a bioelectromagnetic circuitry, which is directly connected through the solar lords, the Ahukines, to the sun. So it's like if we are sending waves, if we are connected to the earth in a way, he's essentially saying that our technology as it stands now is getting in the middle of that, and it's attempting to connect itself to us instead of the earth. Yeah, we got to strip down naked, leave all our stuff behind, and then we can get in touch with that inner biochemical electromagnetic power. See, we've been laughing at these streakers at baseball games, but they're just trying to connect to the earth. <laughs> they are the ones on top, and I think we all need to join them. Brooke, I, it sounds like you're not, you're not with Dan on this. No, I'd like to keep my clothes on at the baseball game. It doesn't have to be at the baseball game, man. I've got like a bunch of 80-year-old people in my neighborhood that would love to see me walking around naked. I'm I just didn't know saying. where you were going with that. I thought they were going to streak. I mean, there's some wild people in my neighborhood. I feel like they might they might join me. I don't know. Like, I mean, if you're 80, what else is there to lose? Everyone knows that you're wrinkly, man. Oh, I thought you were going to say, what, is, what else is there to do? <laughs> Except also for that. Like, shuffleboard, you can only play that so many times. <laughs> you got to streak next. It's the next. It's just the, the natural, you know, the next step. Is Dan selling this to you, Brooke? You buying this? No, not at all. Brooke's keeping her clothes on, man. Sorry. If you were 80, you might get it, but... Yeah, you gotta, gotta be old. I can't say that I disagree with Argelis about humanity reaching what I hope will be the end of its technological narcissism or the value of turning back to ourselves for truth, understanding, and well-being. I'm, as Olivia will tell you, not big on technology, although oddly I have a podcast, but I actually think yeah. that this is a, this is like a, a callback to radio. We're sort of going back in time with podcasting and, and recalling a way of paying attention and being that's more ancient than what we're used to with our flipping around on 
all our different apps and stuff. So I kind of think podcasting is a way of using technology to push us back to a new way of paying, to an old way of paying attention. You still have to be present. Yes. And you have to listen. Podcast killed the radio star. Right? The video star. We're coming for the YouTubes. We're coming for them. Watch out. Demonetization. Be on notice. Uh, Can't see us because we don't have videos. We just hear us. <laughs> we're, in, we're in your ears. So, <laughs> and so is Buzz Aldrin. <laughs> <laughs> so it doesn't feel like 2012 was the turning point after all if we look over the last seven years and technology has just gotten more and more invasive, right? Still, the advance of the organic food movement, the apparent turn toward experience rather than possession, right? Your generation, my generation are known for devaluing stuff. We don't want stuff anymore. We want experiences. We want to spend money on a vacation rather than spending money on an Xbox. Yeah, I definitely have to agree that there has been a super like prominent turn in the way we spend our money and our time. A lot more people that I've realized spend more money on, say, going to music festivals rather than asking for a new iPhone for Christmas and, you know, the whole idea of recycling, everyone's pretty much jumping on that and, you know, stuff that is going to be better for us in the end. What's your big spend, Brooke? What, if, if, you got, if you get a big payday, where are you going with that? Um, I'll probably end up just saving it, putting it in my savings account. <laughs> and Very responsible, yes. Yeah, I'm working uh. on that. <laughs> but I will save it so that I can travel the world because that's my goal. Okay, so you're going to uh, treat yourself. You're going to treat yourself to travel then. Yes. Okay. See, this is what we're talking about, is the turn to experience. We wouldn't necessarily felt this way in the 80s, the sort of height of materialism. We would want nicer clothes. Brooke would be out, you know, getting her fancy shoulder-padded jackets and stuff and oh, hell yeah freaking i don't know hairspray yeah, yeah it's just just yeah. the hairspray budget alone and the leg warmers like that's that's going to cost a fortune so uh but now we're not doing this anymore there's less privileging of those sorts of things moving toward experience that seems to follow what our is saying and the steady rise of what i call the third way belief systems which nav- navigate around scientific materialism and organize religion to discover god and the soul as good things right so these are good things to come they're pushing us in the right direction i think it is a noted sociological fact that all three of these things are happening people are turning to more what we would call occult ways of processing god in the afterlife people are turning to experience people are turning to the organic and the and away from the chemical and the technological in these areas but yes we carry around supercomputers in our pockets too so little column A, little column B. So it just feels like Argelis is a little too sunny in his apocalyptic predictions, uh, given how chaotic the world around us feels today. He's also clearly many steps beyond anything that feels historically or culturally Mayan, uh, especially when we're talking about extraterrestrials and space travel. So let's go ahead and switch gears now and talk about the Mayan perspective. There are Mayans who believed in the apocalypse. This is true. Hunbat's men is a New Ager and also a Mayan and taught aspects of the 2012 doctrine. Hunbat's men believes that uh, Maya can trace their origins to Atlantis and that we are approaching what he calls a new Itza age. Some Mayans, namely the Lakadan Maya, believe in Zutan, a cataclysmic cutting, burning, and destruction of plant life that they differentiate from the Christian apocalypse taught by missionaries. These beliefs align with actual deforestation being experienced by the Maya right now. The Guatemalan Civil War contributes to contemporary Mayan ideas about a period of destruction and renewal. So what's going on in actual Mayan territory, historical Mayan territory, Looks pretty apocalypsy today. Let's talk. Let's turn to uh, Gaspar Pedro Gonzalez now. So he's a prolific Conjobal Mayan writer. Right, I tried. Who was born in Pedro Saloma, Guatemala, and devoted an entire book, El Trece Bactun, or 13 Bactun, to the subject of the Mayan apocalypse. He tells of how he was led by a vision to visit an Ixajzum. To visit an Ix Ajkazum. Gazuntite. I know. Mayan words are hard to pronounce. Uh, That's a female prayer maker, uh, and her name uh, was Katal. 
So Catal was in contact with the same Mayan beings who brought Gonzalez his vision, and she was actually expecting him and brought him and his son to the center of the earth to unfold a revelation of the Mayan apocalypse to come. You will see future events on Mother Earth, a privilege exclusively for the authorities of the spiritual world. You'll be able to enter because we have already received messages about your mission to announce the great dangers approaching this world. According to Mayan legend, caves are places where the Mayans can achieve close contact with the spirit world or underworld of the heart of the earth. Gonzalez and his son saw the history of the world unfold before them in flashing images. Then they confronted scenes of nuclear warfare and mushroom clouds. Finally, they saw the death of all living things on Earth, followed by cataclysmic eruptions of volcanoes engulfing the Earth in liquid magma. That's a lot. That does not sound fun. That's how I that's how I envisioned the world ending. Liquid magma? Yeah, just like a bunch of earthquakes and volcanoes, even though there's no volcanoes near us, but I just imagined that's how it would go. So one would just spring up next to your house. Yeah, and then we would all die. Take you out as you're Instagramming. Yep, and I would probably Instagram it. <laughs> Selfie, hashtag dying. Hashtag apocalypse. <laughs> hashtag is it hot in here or just me? Uh, <laughs> See, you made fun of me for saying that streaking was okay. And here we are. Here we are. It gets hot, clothes are not a necessity if you're going to burn. Brooke, is he talking you into it now? Yeah, I might take my clothes off if it's like super hot. Victory. Right. If you can get a volcano into her backyard, Dan. <laughs> Magma's racing towards you. <laughs> she She's stripping down as she down. runs from the eruption. The end of an era is approaching. You too must be strong to go into the world and let what you saw be known. Each ending is a birth that brings its own obligations and its own pain, but it also brings its own hope if human beings try to break the chains that tie them to material things in order to elevate the spirit a bit and seek human renewal. In this, Catal seems to echo some of Arguelles' apocalyptic theology. Humans have become too material in focus, and a spiritual awakening is necessary in the new dawn. Gonzalez says, I'm quoting, Arms, chemical formulas, technological inventions that distort life itself, its experiments, they will all rise up one day against humans and beat them and destroy them. Humans, uh, this is now me, must realize that they have only come to Earth to be polished like stones in a riverbed. This is really Gonzalez. This is not a kind of thing I would say. Um, to grow in spirit because the body will not last. Paraphrasing his ideas here. With this seems to match some of what Arguelles has to say as well. Gonzalez makes an important distinction between his ideas, though, and the New Age appropriation of Mayan culture. Our Mayan ancestors had access to many mysteries of life in the world due to their discipline, spirituality, and inquiring nature. But they were not extraterrestrials that returned to their planet when their culture collapsed, like is said. The culture has not collapsed. We Maya have never gone anywhere. So for Arguelles, these classical Maya came and went, uh, and they're gone. But for Gonzalez, the very human Maya, not extraterrestrial Maya, give the impression of being extraterrestrials because of their advanced non-physical senses and intuition, capacities that many modern Westerners find to be alien to our way of being. So Arguelles is calling them extraterrestrial, but they're really just cool. That's just like people who do a lot of drugs consider themselves aliens because they have a better understanding <laughs> of the world. Right. Slash <laughs> are somewhat unable to process the world any longer. Yeah. Depending on the amount of drugs. Right, Brooke? Yeah, and the kind of drugs, probably. Everything in moderation. In his theory, Argelis separates the enlightened classical Maya from those that followed after 830. So this is not Gonzalez, not our native Mayan, this is our guy. After the departure of the galactic masters, the Maya were no longer in possession of their greater wisdom, leaving modern interpreters with the freedom to develop their own ideas about what classical Mayan art and belief was about. But this belief is itself materialistic. The classical Maya had great cities and, be and buildings. The fact that the modern Maya live more modestly doesn't negate the fact that they're there. The end of Mayan civilization is a myth told from a Western materialist perspective about what it means to be great. So Gargelis, at the same time he's saying, oh, down with materialism, he's really using materialism to say when the Mayans were great and when they were no longer great. Well, look at how great they were. They had buildings and hieroglyphics. And today they're just hanging out. Where are all their fancy buildings? 
But Gonzalez is saying, wait now, we're still great. We are spiritually great. Culturally, the Maya continue on, and they've not hit any sort of decline. Gonzalez is saying that in reality, they have no such freedom. There is an unbroken line between the classical Mayans and Catal. So what I mean by freedom is the interpreter does not have the freedom to just say whatever the Mayans were. Current Mayans are still connected back to classical Mayans, and they are the ones who are the authoritative voices on this. Their wisdom remains. It's not left and gone to another planet. And we just have to ask them, and they'll tell us. So do you know any Mayans? We know Gonzalez. Okay. <laughs> He's yeah, our man. Yeah, yeah Gonzi and I, we talk, we talk often. <laughs> okay, we don't know him personally, but we do have his book, so we know what he thinks. So, what message can we take from the modern Mayans? Is Apocalypse on the horizon? Has it come and gone in 2012, or does it still wait for us just a little ways up the road? With respect to whether it will be the end of the world, nothing is certain. The end of one cycle and the beginning of another are events of great importance for our culture. What of Gonzalez's vision facilitated by the prayer woman? The nuclear explosions and seas of molten lava that Brooke is worried about in her backyard, or maybe looking forward to? No, I'm worried. Okay, good. Surely these visions foretell a distinctly negative apocalypse. The world of humans is characterized by moving backwards in terms of values. The most astute, corrupt, and vile person is honored by the masses. Only the human hoards out of ambition and exterminates for pleasure. In this Mayan part of the world, even a tiny parcel of land is denied the original inhabitants for cultivating their corn. These factors have brought us to the brink of destruction, but we are able to turn things back if we can only turn inward, away from the material toward ourselves. We must stop giving power to leaders who only give us empty promises and commit terrible acts in our names, and we must honor people for their works rather than their fame. This is Gonzalez writing before the year 2012 how true it is seven years later. We must fight our own demons and stop conducting wars across the ocean. Oh boy. We must strive to end inequality between us so that the poor are not doing the work for everyone and the rich sit back and collect the fruits of their labor. We can definitely hear an indigenous Mayan perspective here. People who are being oppressed and pushed down uh, by the wider Western culture. Then, and only then, there is hope that we might avert a cataclysmic apocalypse and attain a beautiful transformation into something better. Each individual human brings as an inheritance the seed of goodness that claims its space within, in that spiritual realm that we've spoken about. Because of that, in spite of the mistakes in our journey through the world, we continue to have faith in the human being, to love in the corners of human sadness, in the midst of desolation when everything is already finished, to love when we don't receive love. That is the love that was missing in our world. True that. Amen. As a native Mayan writing from the perspective of Central Americans who have been beset by civil war, corrupt leaders, and abused and taken advantage of by first world governments, Gonzalez is understandably less concerned about the more abstract enemies of materialist science and technology that are Gueles attacks in his vision. I'm more worried about iPhones because they're everywhere for me, but if we were having a civil war in Brooke's backyard, I would be worried about that first and iPhones second, right? But Gonzalez agrees with Argueles that a turn away from the material is essential to develop a higher morality that encourages us to love and care for one another. Whereas Argueles makes us feel like we are in the midst of a cosmic change in the Earth's consciousness that is happening beyond our control, Gonzalez puts the burden on us to change ourselves. If we overcome our narcissism and petty disregard for each other's lives, we might avert a catastrophe. And in averting a catastrophe, we may just bring about a great positive change for all people everywhere. That pretty much just lays down the law. I totally agree with all of that. Maybe the real apocalypse was within us all the whole Ooh, time. Wow. It's deep, man. <laughs> I can't wait to go to your slam poetry. Uh, open mic night. Yeah, it's uh, one o'clock in the morning. There'll be three people there, including my grandmother. <laughs> Is the theme apocalypse? It could be. Will your grandmother streak it? I'm pretty sure she has it in her. <laughs> <laughs> Only if there's a volcano. <laughs> <laughs> Let's open up the order of confessors, shall we, Olivia? 
it's open. Do I normally do a noise here? No, you don't ever do a noise here. Oh, you looked at me very, like, expectantly? Yeah, you always look at you that way. I like to keep you on your toes. So we have Charlie Cunningham Art. I'm sorry, what was that? Charlie Cunningham Art. Okay. He likes the in-depth research and has particularly enjoyed the Soul series, which doesn't get enough love. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I see you out there listening to us. You understand. Confessors. And I know you're not listening to the Soul series. Why? It's my favorite. You do really like that series. I love that series because I prove that we have a soul. That's the most, but it's the least listened to part. Everyone wants Satan all the time. They really like Satan. We love you. We understand. We'll feed you Satan, but can you please listen to the soul series? I love Satan too, but sometimes you just have to take a break for the soul. Right. So we've been getting some thoughts from uh, folks out in the... uh, in the Insta sphere, and oh, we've been getting these fantastic comments. Uh, who is this guy here? Is there any o- old, old Tom Naughty. Old Tom Naughty. He's he says he calls all our stuff pretty heckin' cool. I love that. He he feckin' loves heckin our cool. yeah. He's he's pretty feckin' cool. Old Tom Naughty is. I just wanted to put that out because Shannon mentioned that last night to me that she really wants old Tom Naughty to get a little nod for his heckin' comments. I heckin' love that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's, uh, that's enough. Let's close up the order of confessors. Get out of here. Uh, Olivia, bring us on home. I hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting of the secret order of alchemical actors till such a time as we get together and do it again. And our voices today, we had uh, Sean Priest as the uh, Gargueles. We had uh, John Johnny Cook playing the role of Gonzalez. And Bree Litterall was Catal uh, of the Cave. We were joined by Neophytes, Brooke Mayerall. Bye, guys. Thank you, Brooke, for joining us and surviving the magma. Dan Rosendale. Ciao, babies. First episode for both of you, too. How did they do, Olivia? What do you think? You guys both did really well. Pretty good, yeah. Maybe Give we'll yourself some credit. get them get him back yeah, in the you mix. You weren't too half bad yourself, Rob. Well, thank you. What about me? You're like a step up from that. Oh, oh, from Rob? Brooke, Maybe. defend me over here. Yeah, I think Rob's pretty freaking heckin' cool. But, <laughs> oh. <laughs> but I think Dan needs some work. Oh. oh. You're right. Yeah. I, I won't, you know. I mean, I talked about, like, streaking with my grandma. That's like a... Bottom of the barrel topic. <laughs> maybe, maybe a coffee next time, not an app. Oh, all right. Coffee, not an app. I have no idea what that oh, means. Noted, oh, but will not be followed. It was a reference to before we. Oh, oh yeah, <laughs> be, yeah. Before we got started, Dan informed us that he had he had chilled out a bit, and Brooke wound herself up with extra caffeine. So they were both going in opposite directions. Just trying just to coming into the episode. Social experiment. <laughs> I'm joined by Olivia Literal, as always, our Grandmaster of the Order. Goodbye, everyone. Me, my name is Rob C. Thompson. I am your supreme hierophant and doctor of things occult. Our next episode will feature one of my favorite goddesses ever, Kali, the demon slayer from Hindu tradition. So we'll be back heading to India next time. Thank you for listening. We'll catch you for Kali on our next episode in the Apocalypse series. Dun, dun, dun.